atheist now deceased a couple years ago, Christopher Hitchens, writes this about his life, wrote a book called The Rage Against God, Peter Hitchens did, and he says this, telling his story, I set fire to my Bible on the playing fields of my Cambridge boarding school one bright, windy spring afternoon in 1967. I was 15 years old. The book did not, as I had hoped, blaze fiercely and swiftly. Only after much blowing and encouragement did I manage to get it to ignite at all, and I was left with a disagreeable, half-charred mess. As he tells his story, he talks about how his his doubts about God and his, his Peter Hitchens stand as an atheist began to melt. He said this as he invited some folks around to watch him burn this Bible. He said, Most of my small invited audience drifted away long before I had finished, disappointed by the anticlimax and the pettiness of the thing. Thunder did not mutter. It would be many years before I felt the slight shiver of unease about my act of desecration. Did I then have any idea of the forces I was trifling with? And one day he was looking at a 500-year-old painting, a painting uh, by a man named Rogier van der Weyden. And it was called The Last Judgment. It was painted in the 15th century, saw in France and Burgundy. And he said, no doubt I should be ashamed to confess that fear played a part in my return to religion. I had scoffed at the mention of the last judgment in the guidebook, and now I gaped as I looked at that painting, my mouth actually hanging open at the naked figures fleeing towards the pit of hell. These people did not appear remote or from the ancient past. They were my own generation. Because they were naked, they were not imprisoned in their own age by time-bound fashions. On the contrary, their hair and the set of their faces were entirely in the style of my own time. They were people, and people I knew. I had a strong, sudden sense of religion being a thing of the present day, not imprisoned under thick layers of time. My large catalog of misdeeds replayed themselves rapidly in my head. I had absolutely no doubt that I was among the damned, if there were any damned. Van der Weyden was still earning his fee nearly 500 years after his death. At around the same time, I rediscovered Christmas, which I pretended to dislike for many years. I slipped into a carol service on a winter evening, diffident and anxious not to be seen. But I knew perfectly well that I was beginning to enjoy it, although I was unwilling to admit it. I also knew I was losing my faith in politics and my trust and ambition and was urgently in need of something else on which to build the rest of my life. I'm not exactly clear how this led to, in a few months, to my strong desire, unexpected by me or my friends, but encouraged by my then unbelieving future wife to be married in church. And the rest of his story in that book is how he came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, his brother was one of the most well-known British atheists. And I shared with you last week that every one of us exercises faith in something. That Peter Hitchens, in his atheist years, before he came to Christ, he exercised faith in something. There was something there he was building his hope and his life on. But he began to realize those foundations were, 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 were pretty crumbly. 
And the mortar uh, of those foundations had, had deteriorated. And things were giving way. And began to see the Word of God and who Jesus was in the Word of God as the only hope that he could build his foundation on. And so thankfully today we can say that Peter Hitchens knows the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. Interestingly, as a side note, his brother Christopher Hitchens began to read the book of John and began to uh, question some of the things he, he, uh, he had thought, but we don't know that he, he ever came to faith in Christ before he died of cancer. But uh, the wheels were starting to turn. Well, what, does that have, what relevance does that have for Hebrews chapter 11? Because the people in Hebrews chapter 11 had found a firm foundation. But they were being tempted to step off the foundation back on the crumbly foundations. And the writer of Hebrews wants God to form a people who are able to take joy in persecution. Who are able to take joy in seeing their personal possessions burned, taken taken away for their stand for their faith in Jesus Christ. Who would stand firm despite their, their, their families ostracizing them. And, and I'm sure certain, uh, certain business dealings uh, uh, being lost because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And he's telling them to turn, to, 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 to stay on Jesus. He's telling them to, to stay firm. He's telling them not to leave the faith. And he has listed in Hebrews chapter 11 the ancients who have walked similar paths. He's saying... God was faithful. Therefore, have faith in God. This morning, I want us to see Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 22. This very simple truth that faith chases God's word. Faith chases God's word. Look in Hebrews chapter 11 with me this morning. very first verse we're going to look at is verse 8, where the writer of Hebrews says this, Through faith, by faith, Abraham, when he was called by God, God spoke to Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. Faith chases God's word. And Genesis, Abraham lived in a, a, a rich city called the city of Ur. Um, archaeologists have uncovered it in the country of Iraq today. It's not too far from uh, Baghdad and wouldn't have been too far from what have been, would, have, would have been the, um, the, the city of, of Babylon later on. <clears throat> it was a wealthy city. Abraham apparently was a wealthy man living um, with his family in the city of Ur. And the Bible um, says that Abraham was a part of a family that was not atheistic, but were polytheists. They worshipped many gods. And one of the gods in the, in the nation of Ur was a god by the name of Ur-Namu, and he was the moon god. and was like their patron god of the city of Ur. And God speaks to Abraham and he says, get up, Abraham, leave your family, leave the country that, you know, leave the city because I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. 
And as we look back, we know that the whole purpose of that was for God to uh, 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 produce the nation of Israel, through which would come the Redeemer, etc. But look at how the writer of Hebrews summarizes this whole story. He says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should act to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. Obeyed. I want us to see this morning a very simple, first very simple point is that faith chases obedience. Or faith chases God's word in obedience to what is clear. In obedience to what is clear. It chases God's word in obedience to what was clear. I, I, I want to make sure that you understand that faith isn't something that you think God whispered in your ear. Or faith isn't something that you exercise because of a certain set of events or circumstances. A lot of the things and the ways we describe faith are more superstition. But faith is a response to the obedience of the clear word of God. The clear word of God. God had spoken very clearly to Abraham through his word. In this particular way, it happened to be through the very voice of God. Uh, he speaks to us through the very words of God here. But God spoke to Abraham, and Abraham, the, the, the writer, highlights here, as was somebody who, very simply, obeyed. He obeyed. And so faith chases down God's word, and it responds in obedience to what is clear. You can see this in, also in verse 17, later on. God very specifically told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son. And verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried or tested, offered up Isaac. He put him on the altar. God stopped him before the knife came down, didn't he? But he obeyed. He obeyed the very clear word of God. And a faith that is a biblical faith is a faith that is responsive. It is responsive. These men and women that are in this chapter, they were prepared to take God at His word because they knew it was a word of unrivaled authority. They knew it was a word of decisive importance. They knew it was a word of immense power. And they knew it was a word of complete reliability. And I wonder if we do as well. Are we absolutely convinced that the word of God is an unrivaled authority? That the word of God is of decisive importance. That the word of God is a word that is of immense power. We're not talking about Reader's Digest ink on paper here. We're talking about a word of God that is powerful and it is completely reliable. God has given us very clear commands in Scripture, hasn't He? God's given us clear commands to our families, for example. He's given us very clear commands to husbands. And how they respond to their wives. He's given us clear commands to wives and how they respond to their husbands. He's given very clear commands to wives of unbelieving husbands. One of them is that they be one without a, without a word. By your conversation. In other words, by your life. Lived in front of them. He's, been, he's given very clear commands to children. To obey their parents. To honor their parents. Because he takes pleasure in it. He's given clear commands to teens, to young men. I think of some of the instructions in Titus 2 to young women, uh, to, to older men, to older women. 
He's given clear commands about what our work is to look like, our jobs, our relationships with our employers, our relationships with those who work under us, how we're to view our jobs, how we're to, how we're to um, uh, be good stewards of our finances, uh, how we're to give to God's work in His, in his kingdom. Uh, he's given clear instructions to the church about our mission to make disciples. And do we respond in obedience to what God has made clear? Do I, do you, respond in obedience in all our different roles and God's instructions to what God has made very clear to us? You know, a lot of times uh, uh, we can get distracted by trying to figure out um, uh, things that maybe not be that might that might not be so clear, and trying to figure out all different scenarios and and this and that. But are we faithful to what is clear? The Bible has a clarity to it. He's made it very clear as to what is to apply to us. Do we take the Word of God and apply it? And I wonder, I wonder this. I wonder this question sometimes about my own life. If all I had of the Bible was what I obeyed, how many pages would it be? Because real faith chases God's Word in obedience to what was clear. You know what? Abraham had to leave everything he had as comfort, didn't he, in her. Do you know the faith in God that obeys what is clear? Um, uh, do you know that that rebukes materialism, doesn't it? Look at the verse again in verse 8. He says, he obeyed and he went out not knowing where he was going to go. Do you think he had to leave some things behind? Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If you know that this next world is a better one, are you going to waste your time clutching for more and more things? I have a, a, a friend who's, who was widowed at the in her forties, and um, and uh, I, I, was, I was sharing some things um, that be so, you know, everybody makes bucket lists, things they want to do before you die. And, um, and I was listing some things that would be cool to do before I die. And, um, and she said, you know what, I don't do bucket lists anymore. I said, why? Because my bucket list is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, I'll get my bucket list done there. Okay, I'll have lots of time to do it too. Um, uh, and and, and I, re, I appreciated that. This is somebody who who uh, who she had seven children, and her husband died while she was in her forties, and it put everything back in perspective again. She knew what was important. One of the earliest writings outside of the Bible, but the earliest writings in the church was a was a little little letter called the Shepherd of Hermas by one of the church leaders. Um, And he writes this. He says, You know that as the servants of God, your city is far from this city. If then you know your city in which you are going to dwell, why do you here prepare lands and costly establishments? Take heed then. Make no further preparations for yourself. Listen, he's not saying, he's not talking, um, there's a prosperity gospel and you can also have a poverty gospel. And they're both false, right? But listen to what he says. He says, Make no further preparations for yourself 
beyond a sufficient competence for yourself as though you were living in a foreign country. In other words, why do you do what you do? Heart motivations. Why do you gather and clutch at what you do? All right? And a, and a, and a faith that is a real Bible faith obeys and it doesn't clutch on to the old things. I'm not saying you can't have things as a Christian. We have more things. I'm going to Myanmar in a few week, couple weeks, right? And so I'm going to be slapped in the face by the lack of things that these believers have and are happy with, right? And I'm probably going to come back feeling um, like, okay, let's let's uh, let's downsize and uh, let's 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 move everything out and you know, et cetera, go live in a, in a, in a camper or something. Um, but God does give us good gifts to enjoy, right? Gives us good gifts to enjoy. But he gives us things to leverage for his glory. That's why he gives us things. All right? And um, not just for our own hoarding. There's a difference there. So a real biblical faith is a faith that is an obedience. It chases God's word as obedience to what is clear. <clears throat> Notice also this. A faith that chases God's word, God's clear word, is a faith that doesn't know all the details. It doesn't know all the details. Uh, and it's not like we couldn't study our Bibles and find out what God's saying. I'm not saying that. But in this particular thing, God didn't tell Abraham everything he needed to know. Did he? He said, Abraham, leave your family, leave your country, and go to a place where I'm going to show you. So he didn't say, all right, I want, you to take, uh, I want you to take a left on Spruce Street and take a right on Route 17 and head, take a right when you get to McDonald's and go down Route 1 and eventually you're going to go through Brunswick and you're going to get on 295 and you're going to go to Portland. This is the city that I'm going to take you to. He didn't say that. He said, leave and uh, I'm going to be your GPS along the way. That's what he says. So, can you be satisfied with what God has said? You know, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says there's secret things that belong to God. He hasn't revealed them to us. But the things He has revealed are very clear and we're supposed to obey them, He tells the people of Israel. And so it's important to know what, uh, what, what the author here is emphasizing here. Abraham was not given the clear promise of his future inheritance while he was in Haran. He was sent out, the verse says, to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance. And the story, when you read Genesis, makes it plain that this promise uh, wasn't made to Abraham until he had actually entered Canaan itself. And that promise is that God's going to give him a land, God's going to make a great nation, he's going to be a blessing. And once he reaches the land, the Lord appears to him and said, To your descendants I'm going to give this land. Your descendants. And so the promise of that inheritance uh, 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 was, was, was not... He just tells Abraham, go, and I'm going to take you to a land, alright? And the promise of an inheritance wasn't, first of all, an incentive to obey. It was the reward of his obedience. It's a little little different twist on that. And Abraham is in his mid-70s, and he goes out from his own country in his mid-70s. Do you think that took a little courage to go without knowing all the details? Do you think that this is given to us because there is similar courage that is expected of us? 
of all who walk by faith and not by sight? Because isn't that the definition of faith here in verses 1 and 2? It's the evidence of things not seen. And so he walks without all the details. Verse 11, Sarah 2 says, through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful and promised. Sarah didn't know how that was going to happen when God promised a descendant to, to, uh, to, to their family and she was, she was past a childbearing age. She didn't know how all that was going to happen. But you know what? Without trying to be too graphic here, Abraham and Sarah had to, had to do the act of marriage in order for that to happen. It wasn't like uh, the Holy Spirit and Mary where God put the, 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 the conceived seed in Mary. No. Abraham and Sarah had to cooperate with each other to put this on terms with children in the room here in order for that to happen. They didn't, have all the, they didn't know all the unknown. Uh, they didn't have everything um, uh, clear. But they knew they, in order to have a child, they had to engage in the act of marriage for this to happen. And they did at their age. But they didn't have all the details. They didn't have all the details. I want to ask you this morning, are you content with not having all the details? Control freaks. Are you alright with that? It's a good thing you're not alright with that because that's why it's called faith. Because you are dealing with things that are unseen. You are dealing with the clear commands, the clear promises of God, that there is reward, uh, that, that when Jesus says uh, 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 there, is, there, is a, there is a crown after the cross, that when we take up the cross and follow Him, there is great reward. That when we're persecuted for righteousness sake, there's great reward. That when uh, uh, we follow in God's word, that God can say, well done, good and faithful servant, and there is reward means that we're not going to know all the details. But we've got to be faithful to what he's, what he's told us. The next thing that seems to be clear about faith as it's being described with these particular individuals is that a faith that chases God does so in a consideration, a, a, a worthy estimate of who God is. A consideration of God. What do you mean? Well, um, look in verse 11. 11. So Sarah receives strength to conceive a seed. So her womb comes alive enough to bear a child for conception. And she has this child Isaac when she's past age. Why? Verse 11, the end of verse 11 says, Because... She judged him faithful who had promised. Why is she able to have faith that God's going to do this? Because she judged him faithful. In other words, she looked at the character of God. She looked at his worth. She looked at his promises. She looked at his works in the past and she says, Yup! He is fully up to the task. He can do this. I don't know how that's going to happen. In fact, I laughed a little at first. But God's going to do it. And so, as I mentioned, she engages in what is necessary for that to happen. And you know what she names her son? Isaac, which means laughter. God gets the last laugh, right? Um, 
But she was able to do that because though she had doubts, she had to stop and say, God, this is who you are. You brought light out of darkness. You brought me and Abraham all the way from her. And you can do this too. You can do this too. So folks, don't think this is unattached to the object of faith. Like we're just faith for the sake of faith. No. This is attached to the unchanging anchor of our soul. The God of heaven. The triune God. Next, I think it's very clear that faith that chases down the word of God and banks on it has a future focus. It has a future focus. Um, What do we mean a future focus? Well, look in verse 8, for example, again. It says, uh, verse 8, about Abraham, which he should after receive. He went out not knowing. Future focus. Verse 10. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The idea of looked is he waited. He's waiting. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but what? Having seen, and having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. An enduring faith is going to have a future-oriented desire. It's going to live for eternity. A faith that's going to last is going to be a faith that has a future focus. All of these characters, the writer points out, they died in faith. They died with a trust and reliance on God's promises. With the promises of God so deeply engraved and etched into their hearts and minds. But you know what? Abraham never got the land. He buys a portion of land, the cave of Machpelah, as a burial ground. But he never sees the full realization of that. Later that happens in Joshua, the book of Joshua. Um, But he doesn't. He doesn't see the, the promise fulfilled. Uh, Moses never gets to the promised land. Um, Isaac, Joseph says, yeah, um, I know I'm not going to get there in person, but take my bones there. Right? As a future focus, they died in faith. For all the stories... Like Daniel in the lion's den, where Daniel was delivered from the lions. There were hundreds in the Colosseum in Rome who were lion food and torn to pieces. They died in faith. They, they, their, their spiritual vision was such that though they did not exactly uh, actually possess that promise in their hands. They had seen it. God gives a vision and eyes that are better than these things, than the glasses. He gives an eternal perspective to his people. Or they set their eyes on what God has promised, and they march there like Jesus did to the cross, face like a flint. 
And there's things along the way, and there's bumps in the road. But Jesus completes that work that he does in his children. They have a future focus. They have a future focus. These fathers of Israel had only had a foretaste of his favor. And folks, we have the promise of Jesus Christ who's already come. And will return again. We are people of the promise as well. We believe in something that they had to look forward to. We believe in something that already happened. But we haven't seen it with our eyes, have we? John says that who we looked upon and our hands have handled um, is a real tangible Jesus. And he says on the basis of that, this is, this is how are you to be, and this is how are you to act, and this is the life you're to have, and this is the relationship you have with him in relation to his people. But John was writing to people that hadn't. Because a faith that chases God's word lives with a future focus. Eyes that haven't seen it yet. And by the way, (laughs) I really don't need to say this, but that doesn't make the word of God any less true and reliable. Just because we haven't seen everything that it says doesn't change its truth. Let me share a story of a man who was able to go through the Civil War um, because of his future focus. Um, During the Civil War, there was a revival that spread through the Confederate Army. And there were many soldiers that came to Christ. Part of that reason was because many of the generals of the Confederate Army actually were dedicated Christians. Um, I wouldn't agree with all their positions, but they were dedicated Christians. And uh, Robert E. Lee and, and uh, you know, Stonewall Jackson. And there was another one whose name was Lieutenant General Leonides Polk. And mo- many of them were Episcopalians there before the Episcopalian Church had gone off the rails here. Um, but he was one of these influential generals. And he was spiritually mentor- mentored by two of his close friends, someone you may have heard of, a man by the name of E.M. Bounds, who was a Confederate chaplain. Wrote books on prayer. And another man named Frank Lyon, a uh, leading Christian layman. And Polk became known as a man of God among his troops. And he influenced his soldiers and other generals in spiritual matters. And General Polk and General Hood were riding side by side one day discussing battle plans. And uh, his uh, friend General Hood, he had lost his leg in the Battle of Chickamauga and he had to be tied onto his horse. And the conversation shifted to spiritual things, as it often did when you would talk to General Polk. And Hood asked if he would be willing to baptize him. And that night, Polk baptized Hood in front of the troops against the background of artillery fire. And his troops in the middle of war, saw their uh, one-legged general leaning on his crutches being baptized, affirming his faith in Jesus and committing his life to him. And the wife of General Joseph Johnston had heard about General Hood's baptism, and she writes this to General Polk. She says this, You are never too much occupied, I well know, to pause to perform a good deed. And will, I am sure, even while leading your troops on the victory, lead my soldier nearer to God. General Johnston, her husband, has never been baptized, and it is the dearest wish of my heart that he would be and that you should perform the ceremony. 
It would be a great gratification to me. I have written to him on the subject, and I'm sure he only waits your leisure. I rejoice that you are near him in these trying times. May God crown all your efforts with success and stay your life for your country and your friends. And it was on May 18, 1864, that this General Johnson, her husband, confessed publicly his faith in Jesus, and General Polk baptized him as well. And Polk wrote to his wife, It was a deep, solemn scene, and what a passage for history. God seemed to be drawing our hearts to him. Our trust is not in chariots or horsemen, but in the living God. May he take and keep all our hearts until that day. It was just a few weeks later that the troops of General Polk and Johnson were stretched very thinly across the mountains of of Marietta, Georgia, in the north, uh, making them very vulnerable. And that's when General Sherman was sweeping down in the Civil War. And their forces fired several rounds of cannon fire up the mountain toward Polk's troops that were bedded down in the mountain. One shot exploded near General Polk, and there was shrapnel that, that tore through his chest and killed him virtually instantly. And when they recovered his body, they found in his bloodstained pocket three copies of a tract entitled Balm for the Weary and Wounded. And they were inscribed to General Johnston Hood and Harding, and each had been signed, um, with the compliments of Lieutenant General Leonidas Polk, June 12, 1864, with his intentions undoubtedly to give those three generals who he had basically led to the Lord and baptized uh, to, to give to his friends that morning. But of course, he never got a chance to do that. And they delivered those tracts. Uh, they delivered them to General Johnston. And he was presented with a tract, and he says tearfully, The autograph and the noble blood that almost defaces it makes it a souvenir truly precious, one which I shall cherish while the Almighty leaves me on earth. And I tell you that story to give you an example of a man who was engaged in the worldly affairs of this life. He's a general. And we probably wouldn't agree with his position on that side of the Confederacy, right? Um, But a man whose faith was rooted in God, wasn't it? And he did his duty. And he did what God called him to do, what he believed God called him to do. But he did it knowing that there was a greater kingdom that he served. And folks, that leads me to the last points here. When God saves you, and you have exercised your faith in him, a living faith, it brings you into a changed relationship with everything on this level. Do you see that in this text here? It seems to be pretty clear to me here. But there is a changed relationship to the world, isn't there? Friends, if you do not have a changed relationship with the world system, you do not have a changed relationship with sin, then how can you say you have a relationship that's been changed to Jesus? These people recognize that this world was not all there was. In fact, look what... Um, Look what is written about Abraham in verse 9. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise. But here's what he says. As in a strange or a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Why did he do this? Verse 10. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Verse 13, a summary of these people. These all died in faith. And the end of verse 13 says, And confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Verse 14, 
For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Listen, I am so thankful to God for my U.S. citizenship, but it is nothing compared to my heavenly citizenship. And the U.S. of A. is not the kingdom of God. And I wonder how attached we can be to something that will one day pass away. And I don't want to say that fatalistically. All right. But kingdoms come and go, don't they? These people had a different relationship with the world on a horizontal level, don't they? What does John put it? Living in an empire. It made him long for something much better than that. The Roman Empire made him long for something that wasn't much more lasting. He says, love not the world, neither the things in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not what? Not abide in him. And he says, here's why you don't love the world. The world passes away. But whoever does the will of my Father Jesus, he's saying Jesus' words. He's already said, said this in the Gospels. Abides forever. Do you understand there's a different relationship? I'm not attached. You, you go through the world now in a hotel mentality. A tent mentality. Um, I'm sure there's some exceptions to the rule in here, but probably all, not all of you, though you might like going camping, you don't like doing it for a month or two months or three months. Some of you, one day is enough, right? Um, And that's how we need to think about this world. We love it. We love the people. I'm not saying we love the world system. We love the people. We we, we care for God's earth. Um, uh, We we were responsible citizens. We're not rooted in it, though. We're not rooted in it. There's a different relationship they have. A different relationship. There's a changed relationship with the world. These people were seeking a homeland. They were seeking a permanent city. They didn't merely anticipate heaven. They evaluated the things of the earth. Their security was not in their homes and their jobs. Their security was in the city for the believers. And a final point that is very obvious here that they go through here without quitting. Did Abraham have some weaknesses? Did Isaac have some flaws? Did Jacob have some flaws? They don't quit. They are persistent. They are persistent. They look back at what God has said and they go on in the future because of what he said. Even a guy like Joseph, the end of his life, He's saying, guys, I know I'm frail and I'm not going to make it to the promised land. But after I die and, 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 and my flesh is gone off my bones, pack up my bones in this box and you bury them there in that promised land. You know what he's saying when he says that? He's saying, I know it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. It's not going to happen. It might not happen in my lifetime. It's going to happen. And so this is the best way I can deposit myself over there because I can't do it myself. So you guys do it. 
When when Jacob, in verse 20, uh, is leaning on his staff, and he blesses the sons of of Joseph, and Joseph says, whoa, what are you doing? You're blessing the younger instead of the older. You're supposed to bless the older son. The older son gets the blessing. And Jacob says, no, that's not God's ways. I've learned a little bit since then. Why was he able to do that? Because he had faith in God and God's ways. When Isaac, in verse 20, blesses Jacob and Esau, though we know the flaw of Isaac, he favors Esau, but Jacob deceives him, right? And Jacob gets the blessing. And Isaac find, or excuse me, Esau finds out about it, and he rushes into the room later, upset. And he says, how come you didn't bless me? You let that little uh, snake take away the blessing. You know what Jacob says to him? Or excuse me, Isaac says to him, it's done. Did Isaac have flaws? He wavered? Yep. But he lands. He lands the plane. And folks, a true faith that chases God's word, it lands the plane. On God and bank somebody says. Let's pray.